let's open up our Bibles this evening to the uh, book of 1 Samuel. I want to take a look at chapter 28. Now, we've got a, a couple of guys. We've got King Saul, and of course, he has um, so many years of just failure, and he's going to commit one more great failure here in chapter 28, and we've got, we've got David, and David certainly has not committed as many failures as, as King Saul, but we, we must not forget, David, David was a little liar, right? And David, uh, David had a hard time in different seasons of his life uh, telling the truth. And both of these men are going to be headed into crisis points. Now, David is, isn't going to end up quite as bad as Saul. Saul's going to end up losing his life. And if we're not for the grace of God, David would lose his life as, as well. David, you remember, he's being led by fear. He said, I know one day Saul is going to kill me. Even though everybody and their brother is telling him, you're going to be king, you're going to be king, you're going to be king. In that moment of weakness, he just convinced himself, I am a dead man if I stay in Israel. So he ends up going into Philistine territory and he feigns a type of loyalty to King Achish, one of the five Philistine kings. And he is causing Achish to believe that he is killing the allies of Israel when in reality he is killing the ancient enemies of Israel. So David is kind of playing it on both sides. He's, he's trying to find that place of compromise and, and yet he, he doesn't want to step over that line to where he's really violating doing some very, very bad things. And so both of these guys, they're sort, of, they're sort of being drugged now into this point of crisis. Now, David's crisis is just gonna be mentioned just briefly in the opening verses, and then we're not gonna see how that turns out until we get into the next chapter, the next time we're together. Chapter 28 primarily is focusing on this final blunder that uh, King Saul ends up making. So we notice now in... Um, in verse one, so David now he's been he's been leaning on his own understanding, and sometimes we we lean on our own understanding. It leads us into compromise, and initially compromise seems to deliver us from aggravation and danger. You compromise, it's only a matter of time. It's going to come back. It's going to bite you in the rear end, and that's what's going to happen here with David in chapter twenty nine. So we read in verse one. That now it happened in those days that the Philistines, they gathered their armies together uh, for war. So multiple armies. The Philistines, they had these five city-states. And so it appears that they're going to give one great push to cripple, severely cripple and injure the nation of Israel. So all of their armies are gathering together. And we're going we're gonna to take care of business finally once and for all. So they gather together for war, to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, you surely know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. And David said to Achish, surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. And so as these forces now are gathering together, one final push to just destroy this weakened king, 
Achish says to David, now you're, you're going to go with me and you're going to be, boy, my, my rear guard. You're going to be protecting me. I know, it, I know what you're able to do. Now, David understands he's being, he's being pushed into a corner. And notice he gives, he gives a weird answer here, right? Surely you're going to, you understand that you're going to go with me and you're going to be my guardian. And then notice he says, well, surely you know what your servant can do. Well, what kind of answer is that? right? Hey, you're going to go with me into battle. Well, you know what I can do, right? I, I don't think David knew what to say. I don't think David was thinking to himself, I, yeah, yeah. If I go into battle with this guy, I'm going to be killing the very people I'm supposed to be king over. If I tell him no, well, he's going to end up killing me. I mean, so you talk about being in between a, a rock and a hard place. You, you certainly have it here. And so these two armies now are beginning to gather together, come against each other. Now in verse three, now we're told in verse three, and, and we wouldn't have known this if it weren't for verse three, that one of the good things that Saul did is that at some point in his administration, he made sure that all of the witches and all of the Satanists were dealt with in the, in the land of, of Israel. So we're told here that all of the witches, all of the psychics, and um, you know, all of the, uh, all of the tarot, tarot card readers, uh, they've, they've all been uh, pushed out of, of the land. So now, now as he is facing this enormous invasion, think about the situation he's in. God is not talking. Samuel is dead. And you can't find a witch to save your soul. So if you want to have some spiritual insight, where is this poor guy going to go? And so he says to a couple of his guys, get me a witch. Just find me, find me a witch, wherever, wherever you can, just find me a witch. And now where do you, where do you find a witch? Craig, Craigslist? I, I don't know. But they, they searched high and low and they found a witch in the town of Endor. And so she becomes known famously as the witch of, of Endor. And, and God's not speaking to this guy because, as we're going to see in a moment, Saul's going to be told, hey, God's not talking to you because you're not listening. And, of course, all of us, I'm sure we've had those kind of experiences before where, where somebody is asking you for advice, asking you for counsel. You've got, you've got a lot of experience with this person. And every solid thing you tell them to do, they just blow it off and they don't do it. And there comes a point where you just get tired of giving the person advice because they're not going to listen anyway. I'm just going to save my breath. Why should, I, why should I tell this person anything? And that's where the Lord is at with Saul. Everything that he has told Saul, Saul blows it off, and he doesn't, he doesn't do it. So the, Lord, the Lord's just, we're, we're, kind of, we're kind of done here. And so Saul then is told, hey, we got this witch. She's over at Endor. Well, notice in verse 8 what Saul does. So Saul, he disguised himself, and he put on other clothes. And he went, and two men with him, and he came to the woman by night and said, Please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one that I shall name for you. Now, perhaps he put on a disguise because he doesn't want the rest of Israel to know that the king is going to a psychic. That, that could be. The other thing is the geography of all of this. Now, what is, what is going to develop is what's known as the Battle of Mount Gilboa. Now, we're told here that the Philistines have positioned their troops at Shunem, 
And Israel, they have their troops on Mount Gilboa. And the witch is in Endor, right? So in order for him to get to the witch, now you got the hill of Morah in between uh, Shunem and Endor. And we're talking only just, just a handful of miles. It wasn't very far from the Philistine position to where the witch was at. And so this guy is going to have to get pretty close to enemy positions. And so it would seem that maybe he's just trying to blend in, just going to go as an ordinary Joe, just he's not military, he's not government, he's just going to, going to you know, kind of blend into the general population, if you will. And he puts on other clothes to, to go up there. Now, in the ancient world, there were a number of different kinds of divination. If you wanted to hear from the spirit world, there were a number of things that you could do to receive instruction from the spirits. One of the things was known as bellomancy. Bellomancy involved arrows, where, let's say, you want to know if the spirits think it's a good idea for you to get married. So on one arrow, now you, you got three possible answers, right? Yes, no, well, yeah, but you better hold off for a little, you better hold off for the guy to mature, right? And, uh, and so you would take those three answers and you'd put them on three different arrows and then you'd hand them to a buddy, a buddy would mix them up and then he'd hand you an arrow and you'd shoot the first arrow, not knowing what the answer written on it was, and then you'd write the second arrow, or shoot the second, and then shoot the third, and then whichever arrow went the furthest, you'd go out there, you'd find that furthest arrow, you'd look at what was written on the arrow, and there's, there's your answer, there's what the spirits are telling you. There was also hepatoscopy, and this was, a, this was a weird way of discerning direction where they would cut out a liver of a, of a goat, of a sheep, and then you would take it to a holy guy, and a holy guy would read the liver, look at the different markings on it and so forth, and begin to tell you, okay, this is what the spirits are telling us here through this, this uh, liver. And then, of course, there were teraphim. This was an idol where you'd give some kind of devotion to the idol, and then you'd trust that the idol was going to speak. And then you would have necromancy. And this, of course, is communication with the dead, where you'd have a seance. And so this now seems to be the favored uh, take that uh, Saul is, is going to be using here. I, I, I want to I speak to the dead, and so I want you to call up the guy uh, that, that I want to uh, talk to. Now, in Ezekiel 21, it's interesting. We read, for the king of Babylon, he stands at the parting of the way and the head of the two ways, and he uses divination. He shakes the arrows. That would be bellomancy. And he consults the teraphim. That, of course, would be the teraphim, idols. And he looks at the liver, the hepatoscopy, right? And so all three are, are used there. And so uh, he goes now to this, this witch, and he says, uh, bring up whoever, whoever I want. Now, it does appear that this is the straw now that breaks the camel's back, uh, that this is, this is when the Lord just decides, all right, this boy's time uh, is now over with. Because in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, we read, and so Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord because he did not keep the word of the Lord and also because he consulted a medium for guidance, but he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he killed him. 
Turned the kingdom uh, over to David, uh, the son of uh, Jesse. And so he comes now to this witch. Now, you'll notice the witch, she's a little suspicious, and she says, I, I think I smell a cop here. I'm not, after all, she's a psychic. I mean, we'd expect her to be a little insightful, right? And uh, she says, I, hey, how do I know you just don't want me to reveal my hand and then you're gonna turn me over to the authorities? And, you know, it's amazing uh, how Saul responds to all of this. Now, Warren Wearsby, he points out the great fall of King Saul. Here's Saul under the cover of darkness, gonna go to this psychic, gonna go to this witch. And Warren Wearsby, he says, Saul began his reign at the dawning of the day when he was anointed by, uh, anointed king by Samuel the prophet, that was in chapter nine. But he ended his reign by going out at night to visit a spirit uh, medium. So this is, this is how far your self-will will take you. You look, at, you look at Saul, he began with incredible promise. No doubt would have been voted the most likely to succeed. You remember he's supernaturally guided to the home of Samuel. Samuel gets him up early in the morning, beautiful, bright, sunshiny morning, and he anoints him with oil. You're the next king. Now you go home, your, dad, your dad's worried about you. Here he is starting out this bright morning being the anointed king. And how does it end? Under the cover of darkness, he's going to this medium. Now, they're called mediums because they're, they're in between. They, they position them in between the living and the dead. And they're, they're in between and they're being used to communicate what the dead is saying. So she says, I'm a little hesitant here because I think you guys might be working for the government. You might be, you know, you, you might be, you know, DEA or something. And uh, notice what, what uh, Saul says to her in verse 10. This is crazy. Saul swore to her by the Lord saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you uh, for this uh, thing. Now this will be uh, the very last time that Saul will use uh, the name God. Very, very interesting. And he's sealing his fate because what did the law say? In Leviticus chapter 20, and the person who turns after mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut them off from his people. Now, what is, you know, what's the big deal? Why, why does it appear that the Bible is very dogmatic about none of us seeking to communicate with the dead? Now, understand, first of all, what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean uh, you're, a, you're a parent and you've lost a, a child. We, I remember uh, years ago, we, we had a, a couple here that had lost uh, an only child, a, a daughter, and she was killed in an automobile accident, and they were constantly uh, at the graveyard. I think they spent more time at the graveyard than any place. I've never seen a couple uh, sorrow the way this couple uh, sorrow. And they would, they would go to the grave and they would uh, talk uh, to their daughter. They were just devastated. They were just brokenhearted. Now, you, you lose a, a loved one. Uh, you lose somebody so very dear to you. And you, you go to their grave and you, and you talk. Now, you're not there to communicate with the dead 
You're not there to gather some kind of spiritual insight on should I take this job or that job over there? Should I go to college or get a job? You're, you're there. It's therapeutic for you. You're just kind of emptying yourself out there of sorrow and you're not expecting them to answer. You're just kind of there just for, for a therapy session. The reason why this stuff is so dangerous, as we have talked about before, there are only two teams. You've got the team of light and life and the team of death and darkness, and both teams play by the same rules. And the rules are you don't violate the will of a human being. If Satan could violate the will of a human being, every single unbeliever in the world would be demon-possessed. He cannot violate free will, and God does not violate free will either. That's why Jesus said, look, I stand at the door. He doesn't say, I stand at the door, and I'm going to count to three. If it's not open by three, I'm busting this baby down, and I'm coming in, and I'm going to commune with you. That's not what he says. I stand at the door and knock, and if anybody will open, I will come in unto them, and I will commune with them. Now, those of you that came to Christ, as I did, out of a non-Christian home, you know how that played out in your life. In some form or fashion, there was a time where if some friend said to you, uh, hey, I, I want you to come to church. You know, we got this special speaker. And, and you gave a, a solid no, a hard no. No, I don't want it. What, what in the world do I want to do that for? Come to this Christian kind. No, I don't want to do that. But then, then for some unexplained reason to you at that time, you begin to soften your position a little bit. And then you began to do what? You started toying around with Christianity, right? You started going to Bible studies. You started hanging out with them dumb Christians. You started going to those Christian concerts. You started reading that Bible. You started toying around. These things are called entry points. And you started messing around, and slowly but surely, your heart was open to the grace of God. And by his mercy, he opened the eyes of your understanding. And you came to that point where you said, yes, to the Lord Jesus Christ and you receive salvation by his glorious mercy and his grace. But it started out with you kind of messing around with it. And the same thing holds true for the prince of darkness. You start, you start going to seances. You start messing around with Ouija boards. You start, you start getting into dark stuff. And what happens? Your heart gets open, and you're going to open yourself to this stuff. And you're going to find yourself now being made a slave to it, if you will. This is why Paul said to the Ephesians, now, don't give place to the devil. And that word place, it has the idea of foothold, uh, a beachhead, foot in the door. Don't do it. If we will resist the enemy, he will flee from us, right? He's a defeated foe. But you start opening yourself to this stuff. You start getting a little curious. Well, how does that work? And is that really true? And the more you open yourself to that, uh, the greater the likelihood is going to be that you're going to become a victim of that. So here's now what happens next. And this is this is a crazy, a, a crazy story because this witch is now expecting her familiar spirit or spiritual buddy to show up some demonic force, 
But God intervenes, and God does not permit the familiar spirit to show up, but God permits Samuel, the real deal, to show up. Now, the witch sees Samuel showing up instead of her usual buddy, partner in crime, and so she starts freaking out. Hey, 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 what in the world is going on? You've tricked me, you've deceived me. This, this is not how this deal is supposed to go. And she realizes suddenly that she's not in control of this seance like she thought that, that she was. And Samuel, he ends up uh, showing up. Now notice in verse 15 that Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up. And Saul answered, now this is what kills me here. He's having a discussion with a dead guy, right? And he's just, he's just acting like this is normal, right? He's just, he's sharing about his day. He's just talking about the pressures of life that's on him. He's not thinking, what in the world? I'm talking to a dead guy here, right? And so he says, he says unto him, well, I'm, I'm deeply uh, distressed. You know, like Samuel's his therapist or something here. I'm deeply distressed. For the Philistines, they make war against me. And God has departed from me. And he doesn't answer me anymore, either by prophets nor by dreams. Now, therefore, I have called you that you may reveal unto me uh, what I should do. Now, mark it carefully. Samuel said... Why have you, you, you have done this? Now you give me a reason. He's probably ticked off. Now I don't know where he was at and I don't know what he was enjoying, but now he has been disturbed and nobody likes being disturbed, right? You don't like being disturbed. And so neither did, did, neither did Samuel. So he said, why have you, why have you disturbed me? And then notice what Saul does. First thing, he's asked, why have you done this? And he turns right around and he said, well, first, it's a Philistine's fault because the Philistines are making war against me. And I suppose if we're looking to share blame, God's got to be on that list as well because he's not talking to me anymore. So you can see if the Philistines would have behaved differently and God would have behaved differently, I would not have disturbed you. So I don't think I can really accept any kind of blame here. And again, that is what narcissists do. Narcissists always blame others for everything that goes wrong uh, in, in their life. Now, what seems to be happening here is very similar to what we have in the New Testament. You remember at the Mount of Transfiguration, you have both uh, Elijah and Moses, right? There's, they show up, Elijah and Moses, and they're revealed to Peter, James, and John. Of course, Jesus is there. After all, it's his transfiguration, right? And so this seems to be uh, uh, just a, a repeat um, of that. Now, what, what is interesting here to me um, is we don't really know what the intermediate state is. In other words, you're not gonna get your resurrected body until the resurrection. And the resurrection does not happen until the second coming of Christ. Now, the Bible tells us several things. The Bible tells us that, well, to be absent from your body 
is to be in the presence of the Lord. You're no longer in the corpse. Well, where are you? Well, you're, you're with the Lord. You remember in Revelation, John describes seeing these martyrs, these people that had been killed for their faith, that, and they were under the altar of God. They, they had consciousness. They were able to speak. They were able to complain, right? Why aren't you judging these people? Come on, let's, let's get on with it. They have a sense of a passage of time. You know, people say in heaven, there's, there's no time. Well, Apparently, those, those martyrs could keep time. They knew that it had been a long time since they had been killed and plenty of time for God to bring judgment. But, but what are we? Let's, let's say that you die uh, today and the coming of the Lord is not for 300 years from now. Well, what, what state are, are, are you in? Does your soul have a very similar appearance as your physical body? I mean, here, here we have... We have Samuel, Samuel is not in his resurrected body. Samuel, the resurrection hasn't happened yet. And yet he could, he could oh, well, this is Samuel. He looked like Samuel. And yet it was, it was just, just his, his soul. Now, the only thing that we can say with absolute certainty about the intermediate state is that whatever it is, it's a whole lot better than anything we got going on right now. Because you remember that Paul said, you know, I'm kind of torn here. He was talking to the Philippians. He said, you know, I, I, can, I can see how hanging out would be better for you, an encouragement for the church. But, you know, really, I'm kind of tired of the struggle. I just soon go home and be with the Lord, which he said in Philippians chapter 1. He said, for, for I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. So even though we don't know what the intermediate state is before the resurrection, it's far better than anything that you're going to experience uh, in, in this life. And so uh, Samuel now uh, begins to speak. And of course, here we've got Saul. He's, he's not taking ownership. When, when you're confronted by your sin, there are three things, three possible responses. You can deny it. No, 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 I, did. I didn't do that. Or you can excuse it. Well, yeah, I did that, but, but, you know, really, it's my wife's fault. Or, you know, it's my husband's fault. It's my kid's fault. It's my boss's fault. You know, we're, we're, we're blaming everybody. And the third response is that we can own it. And the only, the only one of those three that really works for God, giving you victory and changing you and doing serious, serious growth in your life is for you and I to own who and what we are. You see, Saul never grew up because Saul never took responsibility for the choices that he was making. It's my environment. I, I'm in a toxic environment. That's what it is. That's why I'm the way I am. It's my environment's fault. And as long as we're just shoving blame on everything and everyone, we're not going to be seeing great victory taking place in, in our lives. And that's why Saul was stuck. Now, notice in verse 19, Samuel continues here. This, this is not good. And moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. And the Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hands 
uh, of the Philistines. And so uh, here we've got uh, Samuel's words. They, they terrify uh, Saul, but Saul was one of these guys that he would be terrified by the word of God, but he'd never listen and he'd never obey. And there's a lot of people like that. They're curious about the Bible. They're fearful about what the Bible says, but they're never quite moved enough to that place of surrender. And that's why we always have to pray, Lord, move me to that place of surrender where I'm just not listening to your word and not even having an emotional response to your word. Lord, I'm, I'm doing your word. I'm being obedient uh, to your word. So his, he, he, just, he, I, he just zonks out here. He just falls down uh, on the ground. He's, he's, you know, uh, pa- passes out. He's struck by, by fear. And uh, so they kind of, come on, boss, come on. You know, you got a, you got a war to fight here. You can't, can't be laying on there. And so the witch, witch now, uh, she makes him dinner. And um, we, we read in verse 25 as we close with this. And so uh, she brought it uh, before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And then they rose, and they went their way uh, that, that night. And uh, kind of sad that we've got a witch here bringing comfort uh, to the king of Israel. And really, it's kind of his last meal. Right? He's going to be dead. He's going to be dead, really, in a, in a matter of, um, of hours. And uh, just so sad. When you think, when you think of the, the heights where this, this young guy started out, and you think the incredible promise that, that was there, and now to see him, think, think about how far he has fallen. Again, Warren Wearsby He says it this way. He said, the final statement in the chapter reminds us of Judas. And when having received the sop, he went immediately out and it was night. Sidlow Baxter, he says it this way. Saul teaches us this further and kindred truth. That to let self get the upper hand in our life is to miss the best and court the worst. The, the, the Philistines were not Saul's worst enemies. His worst foe was himself. And the sooner that we learn that, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing that happens to us as the followers of Christ. You know, we get, we get a few Bible studies under our belt and uh, we, we, we go on maybe a couple of short-term mission trips and we get, a, we get a few verses of the Bible committed to memory and we have some sense that God has used us in, in some way at, at some time. We begin to think so highly of ourselves. We begin to think that somehow we're invincible. We begin to think that somehow, you know, it's impossible for us to stumble. Take heed, take it. If you think you stand, take heed, lest you fall. And this is why we got to constantly just walk humbly before the Lord. Oh God, you keep me. That is a constant. The older I grow in Christ, the more I pray that prayer. God, you've got to keep me. And we've got to keep ourselves in that state of dependency upon the Lord and just watch the Lord bless our lives. And Father, we ask that as we leave here tonight that we would be reminded of the story of Saul that great beginnings do not guarantee great endings. Great endings come about because there is constant dependence upon you, upon your faithfulness. And so, Lord, would you be alive and would you be at work in each of our lives here? 
would you help us just to walk humbly before you, understanding, oh, how we need you. I pray, Father, that you would help us not to become full of ourselves, not to become impressed with ourselves, but, Father, may we continue to be impressed with the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may he be the famous one in our church and in our lives. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.